0: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, the new Christ in Pop Culture film and television podcast. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. Welcome to our very first episode. We're going to have a great first episode. We'll be talking about our TV and film recommendations for the week. And we'll be discussing the 2015 Best Picture race, what we hope wins, what we hope doesn't. But first, we have director Joshua Overbay with us. He'll be discussing his new film, As It Is in Heaven, plus what it's like to reconcile his faith with his art. All of that and more coming up on the very first episode of Seeing and Believing. You're listening to Seeing and Believing and we have a very special first guest today. Joshua Overbay is a uh, director and producer. He recently released his new film As It Is in Heaven. Joshua, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Uh, We're excited to have you on. This is it, man. I feel like like having you on as our first guest on our first episode it'll only go downhill after this so we appreciate you <laughs> appreciate you joining us the- okay so i i loved i loved your film as it is in heaven and it's an, a very intriguing story about a about a doomsday cult which is interesting can you kind of just tell us a little bit more about the story and and why you wanted to to tell this type of story
1: yeah well you know the story itself is about the small religious, uh, sect or, you know, cult, uh, set kind of in a nondescript rural area. Um, and, uh, it, it tracks them. The, the movie starts about 40 days away from, uh, this date that they believe will bring about, well, wh- where they will witness the coming of Christ. Um, And they believe that they're God's special chosen group based on a prophecy that their, uh, prophet had. And, uh, and so everything's kind of going hunky dory, if you will, in this small cult until, uh, the, the older prophet dies and before that passes the torch on to, you know, this very sincere and earnest guy named David. And uh, and he tells him, look, you know, God's taking me out because I haven't been hard enough on them. And if you don't prepare them for the end, then uh, Christ will not return. And so it's very much about all of the, you know, tracking all the madness and chaos that ensues as a result of someone doing what he firmly believes to be uh, the right thing.
0: And what what I found was like especially eerie about this story is I could see some of the things that this group did and it reminded me of some of the experiences I had in church yeah. long ago. Uh some of the maybe charismatic experiences. Did sure. you did you pull from past experience for that inspiration?
1: Yeah, you know, I was um my grandfather was a fundamentalist Bible belt, fire and brimstone preacher. (laughs) And my dad, uh, kind of followed in his footsteps for a little while. And then, you know, when I was a teenager, I started, you know, taking myself to charismatic churches and was really involved with like the vineyard in particular till I was about 24. So, you know, part of my goal was to really create something that I felt would be authentic and true. And so, I spent a lot of time and, and detail and just emotion on set, you know, crafting those performances, but also trying to create a space where uh, I felt like something authentic could emerge. Cause one of my pet peeves is anytime it feels like the majority of the time I see, you know, religious experience represented in American films. It's often, uh, it, it just doesn't ring true to me. And so, I thought the entire film like rested on the believability of their worship life. So, yeah, I was drawing from a lot of experience. And it made it really weird in ways because, well, there are a couple ways that made it really interesting. One, a lot of the actors didn't have a background like that. So, you know, I gave them part of their homework was to go to, you know, Pentecostal church at least a couple times before we started shooting yeah, just right. to just to get comfortable in that space and also to, I think they had to kind of, before they could accept themselves being like that with that behavior, they had to see other people in that space and try to create like a really compassionate perspective and a non-judgmental perspective. So yeah, so that was really weird, but I mean, really cool. And, but then it was also, there were times where we would have these experiences on set. And it was totally contrived in the sense that, you know, I, it was being orchestrated, and people were in performance mode and acting. And yet, in that space, there would be moments on set where it would get really eerie in terms of how close it would feel to to truth, you know. And so, wow, yeah, I, I still kind of like, yeah, crazy about, it. yeah, I think that's crazy. I'm,
2: I'm kind of curious you talking about it being true to life uh, because they are, you know, they're not just a, a Pentecostal movement themselves. They are a cult. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, did you do any uh, research of of on cults and kind of how they work on those dynamics? Or did you mostly draw on uh, more fundamentalist, uh, charismatic traditions when you were working out how the cult worked?
1: Well, I think part of my goal was to really try to blow like just i wanted to demolish the distinction between cult and religion and my experience Mm -hmm. my research was i often found especially like the branch davidian in particular you know that that in waco i drew a lot of just stuff from you know koresh and his experience there and yes there were these sort of haywire thoughts like, you know, when he proclaimed himself the Messiah, but before then, you know, they operated in sort of like a 24 seven church in the sense that, you know, they were seventh day Adventist. Um, that's where they broke off from. And it started in, in a very kind of sincere and maybe uh, a more theologically acceptable position. So, what I studied was that, or what I learned is that, yeah, I mean, there are these sort of the Jim Joneses and, uh you know, the Warren Jeffs, where people are just completely, you know, they enter into such foreign, unrecognizable territory for most people who are evangelical or, you know, more conventionally Christian. Um And so... But a lot of what I studied was – or a lot of what I found out, especially like in, in Waco, was that that's just not the case. Um And so I felt like part of my goal was to make them – just to look at them as more desperate as opposed to crazy. And so I think a way that I tried to execute that was by making them more similar to what you would encounter in, say, a Pentecostal charismatic church than, say – you know, what you might think would happen on a cult, like the way Martha Marcy May Marlene portrays a cult. You know, I wanted this to be much more, like, in line with people's experience. Because I think ultimately the goal of the piece was to get people to ask themselves about the nature of belief and how it functions in their own lives. So I had to try to create that. I want. I kept aiming, you know, and trying to create that close proximity, I guess.
0: And you kind of hit on just, like, pushing kind of these these religious themes, but yet if you look at this film, this is not what someone would describe a quote unquote faith-based film or Christian film. And there I think there's trouble with those definitions. How right. are you trying to make something that was that was different but also spoke to faith and and religion?
1: Well you know, I really was I guess like I went I got my MFA at Regent University, which is, you know, a a Christian university, Mm -hmm. (laughs) this kind of Pentecostal roots. And there there were a couple professors there who really, because I never have, and I still don't have any intention of being like a a faith-based filmmaker because of the connotations. And also just because of the, I think maybe they, and I don't want to be unfair, but just my experience has been that they start from maybe a different point than I do. Mm -hmm. And so what I discovered, like, in grad school was that there are a lot of other filmmakers who, you know, like Bergman or Tarkovsky or Dreyer, often Scandinavian or Russian, but even, um, someone like, uh, Robert Duvall, when he made the apostle or higher ground. Like I thought, I always believed that there was a way to make religion and faith, the subject without, um, it becoming maybe, an agenda. Like I, I felt, I was more interested in how an examination of faith could reveal something about the human condition, as opposed to using it as a means to proselytize. So, I think that was the big distinction. Is I, I kept thinking of myself as. I mean, I knew I wasn't a documentarian, but I was like, how would a documentarian? capture this yes it's completely fictional and i'm creating it but once i put that lens on like i think a documentary would try to be sympathetic and would try to be honest and objective and wouldn't try to push a certain theme uh, on the viewer like pro-faith or anti-faith so and and plus you know at the time i I mean i was going through a, a You know, I was having a lot of questions and doubt, and it about my faith, and it really kind of emerged from that. You know.
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting that you bring up how you were really going for a low key feeling with as it is in heaven. That was one of the things actually that I very much appreciated about it was, uh, whereas Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, which you mentioned and which I love, it kind of takes more thriller. Uh, approach to the material whereas mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of people have compared your film to uh, something a lot more like what Terrence Malick does where it's a lot right. more low-key and sure. uh, where you observe the rhythms of life rather than trying to drive it in a genre-driven direction. Um, did you intentionally uh, emulate that aspect of Malick or were was there another filmmaker that you were trying to work in their mode.
1: I think one of the things I discovered in grad school about myself, because when I started grad school, I was like a huge fan of like uh, Scorsese and Wes Anderson. And my first movie was like this. My first few films were like these failed attempts to make movies like them.
0: <laughs> i like, i like oh. to see the film you made uh, in line well, with Wes Anderson. <laughs> that seems like it'd be interesting.
1: <laughs> uh, it wasn't, you know, um, I mean and so I don't know I just kind of discovered I'm a, I mean you know for me film school was awesome because it gave me 3 years to really focus on my craft and figure out what kind of an artist I am and I I sort of just discovered really quickly that there was just a way that I made movies you know um and uh and they just felt a certain way and I couldn't really control it and so I knew when, I knew that by not putting myself in really strict genre territory, it would give me the freedom to really do that. And also knew that for a micro budget piece, if I needed this to really help, you know, promote myself as a director and, and put my work out there, then it needed to be, you know, very true to me. So, By not going genre, you know, because there are other people who are like, dude, you totally have to make a horror film next because there are (laughs) elements in there that are really unnerving. And that was never my intention. I was just like, oh, you know, this feels right. And this is the yeah, it's like, you know, and, and I think there are certain I mean, I think you can't help that. But, you know, see it the way that you see it and feel it the way that you feel it. And I was lucky enough to have producers and people who let me do that. Um and I guess that's one of the nice things about micro budget filmmaking is the stakes are really low. So there is that freedom to really explore and and trust yourself and find out if you know what you're doing or if you don't. (laughs) So
0: yeah, in in the film it it definitely has that that horror feel in some instances. And I won't give it away but the, the baby storyline. Oh, yeah. And my, yeah. I have a, I have a one year old son and that just, it tore me up and it reminded me of, of under the skin. And there's a similar oh, type, you know, uh, scene in some ways. And, um, and so yeah, that, and I could, I could definitely see that there are a lot of, um, Christian artists out there who they want to do what you're doing. They want to create art. That will, will kind of push people to assess their faith and, and their doubts. And h- what advice would you give to them, um, between balancing the message and the themes and the story?
1: Well, I mean, a lot of this stuff, you know, cause I, I teach at LSU currently, but I taught at Asbury University for four years. And this was a, it's a big question, you know, that we spoke openly about. And, and I think a tendency I see with, a lot of younger filmmakers who are Christians um is is I, is I feel like they kind of see it as being that there's like two roads and they have to go down one or the other so it's like either you're going to make you know kind of family friendly fare or you're going to make um explicitly faith based stuff which you know puts you in to a specific category and also you know, I mean, the expectations of faith-based viewers are just as strict as, say, you know, horror film, uh, mm-hmm. you know, horror conventions. And I've I've seen the really dark side of that where I've had a lot of friends who were making their movies and ended up getting a Christian distributor. And it was like, well, you got to cut this scene because the scene's at a bar and someone is going to be offended by the bar and <laughs> all this other stuff. You know, and I'm like... So, my students, what, what I, what I encountered is a lot of them were like, Oh, I hate faith based films. I don't want to do that. Therefore, I can't talk about God and I can't talk about faith. Mm-hmm. And I've always believed that there is a space because film, because film does, you know, it, it thrives when it is examining the human condition with honesty. And, and to me, like, religious experience and putting it in a religious space is perfect for that exploration i mean what other contexts are you really going to see besides maybe war where people are fighting for what they believe and they're discovering what they truly think about the world and they're asking larger questions and um it so it just makes sense to me but i think a lot of it is um it's uncharted territory or or it was before but like you know, like there are movies that came out last year, like Calvary. And when I saw it, when I saw Calvary, oh, yeah. I saw, yeah, you know, which I think is just an incredible film. Yeah, that, fantastic film. That really does a lot of this stuff. And when I I went to the I went to the film and talk, and there was a Q and A with the filmmaker. And I asked him, I was like, um, you know, what inspired you? And he was like, Well, I really felt like there were these films from you know, the fifties and sixties and forties from Dreyer, Bresson, Bergman and Tarkovsky. And suddenly there was this space back then where religion could be openly discussed and not Mm. in a political manner, but more in terms of how real people think and and the impact that it has on their lives. And so Mm. he was like, that's why I made the movie. And I was like, yes. You know, I was like, that's, that's the idea. So I think, I think it's like anything else, you know, it it just, it requires people to be really honest with themselves and you have to, you have to be willing to put your, you know, the things you're confident about and the things you're not confident about on the screen and really, you know, divulge those secrets, I guess. So it's, it's a, it's, it's gotta be really personal, I Mm -hmm. think.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw you through a loop. In a moment I want I want to talk to you about where we can we can see the movie and where our viewers can watch as it is in heaven. But so I th- throw a curveball at you. You mentioned Calvary. What's your favorite film from uh, this last year?
1: Gosh, it's I feel like such a cliche by saying this, but <laughs> movies that have moved me the most, well, like I haven't my uh, I, I think my top five and I haven't landed on where's I, I really like, you know, um, I'm a big fan of, you know, like Quiplash and Calvary and uh The Overnighters, which is this Oh
0: a, yeah, fantastic a, documentary.
1: A documentary that just ripped me apart, you know, and again, it's in this same space where you have a minister very much trying to live out uh, what he thinks is, uh you know, Christ's calling, but also grappling with his own demons, and those become public, and I, I just thought it was so beautiful. And then, you know, I can't but like boyhood, you know, oh, moved, yeah. moved me to tears. And yeah. when I and when I left Birdman, I was like, why am I making film? You know, am I in my presence? I was questioning my motives, you know, and my sense of how much of identity I put into those things. So it's tough, man. I'm like, uh, ah, Birdman, boyhood, Birdman, boyhood. And it's funny because every year I never align with what the common consensus is. And then this year I feel like I really am. And so I'm like, I don't know. I don't care. I mean, it's what I think, but yeah, Yeah. those movies, I think those five in particular had a pretty significant impact on me. So that's how, you know, I always assess like uh, a film's value based on, you know, how long did it sit with me? What did it make me think about?
0: Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Joshua. Tell us where we can watch as it is in heaven, and stay up to date on on your future work,
1: oh yeah, um so you can go to uh as it is in heaven the movie dot com okay. or find us on facebook uh, just uh you know there's a pretty big movie page as it is in heaven we are the movie is available on iTunes amazon uh you know voodoo it's on um most most cable video on demand outlets so uh, it's definitely out there um to be uh to be viewed
0: awesome joshua thank you so much for for coming on we really appreciate you taking the time to join us and if our viewers our listeners have not been able to watch as it is in heaven i would encourage you to do that josh thanks again we appreciate it yeah thanks a lot josh
1: yeah thanks so much for having me
0: We'll be back on Seeing and Believing. We're going to be talking about the Oscars as well as some film and television recommendations for the week. you just listened to is from Paul Haworth and Sam Groot, and it is Blackpool Rock. You know, Kevin, I'm really pumped about the very first episode, but we need some help from our viewers. Yeah, that's, that's
2: right, Wade. Um, the lifeblood of our show uh, to our listeners is for you to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Uh, what we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast about us not getting canceled and going on forever, uh, <laughs> you... <laughs> You can help us do that. Uh, all you need to do is go on to where you find the podcast on iTunes. You can just search for Seeing and Believing or christ and Pop culture it 'll pop up either way. Uh, we need you to subscribe and then if you could also rate and review us that's a huge help for us. Five star reviews help us get noticed, help us get more listeners, and everything is more fun when there are more people involved so Help us yes. out and give us a rating.
0: Yes, we would love uh, a review. And here's what we're doing. Here's what we're doing, Kevin. We want to entice the listeners to give us a review. So we're gonna take all the reviews that we receive between episode one and episode two. Okay, we'll call this episode Phantom Menace, and, and it- <laughs> <laughs> we call this one A New Hope. Please. A new, okay, let's, let's, new let's hope. stick with And then between A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back, we're gonna take all all the reviews that we receive on iTunes, and we're going to put all those people's names uh into a hat or a bucket or a just whatever we have, and we're going to pull out one, and whoever's name we pull out, we're going to have you contact us, and we're going to send you an autographed, inspirational picture of a celebrity. Now, here's the thing, Kevin. This is not an autograph from the celebrity on the picture. No, it's not. It isn't. It's not. It is an autograph from us with an inspirational message thanking you for subscribing and rating, seeing and believing. We don't know which celebrity we're going to send you, but it will be some sort of celebrity. Uh, it could be Forrest Whitaker. Uh, I'm not sure. So make sure you, you review us on iTunes and we're going to pull the name out of the hat and we will announce your username. We won't read the review in case it's bad, but uh <laughs> but it, it won't be bad. They'll no. all they'll all be positive. They'll all be positive. It'll be like it'll be like Boyhood on Rotten Tomatoes. It'll just yeah. be it'll be great. And make sure you do it. And also, Kevin, they can email us.
2: Yeah, that's right. Uh, if you want to interact with us at all, if you want to comment on the show you just heard, or you want to send us some comments or recommendations for topics you'd like to see covered on the next episode, you can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Uh, we are happy to get email. It makes us that there's literally nothing that makes me happier than to see email on that account. Um, yes. so,
0: yeah, yeah. And Wade too, I'm assuming that makes, that there's nothing. No, I know I, I love email. And even if you sign us up for a, for spam email, I'll still love to receive it. So make sure to email us. Also, we want to talk a minute about CAPC, Christ and Pop Culture memberships. One of the things that keeps us afloat and allows us to do podcasts like this are Christ and Pop Culture members. And for $5 a month, Kevin, only five, what can you buy for $5? I'd probably, probably nothing. It's such a small amount of money. That's true. Maybe a cup of coffee. Maybe, depending on where you go. For only $5 a month, you can be a member at Christ and Pop Culture, and you can support uh, not only our podcast, but the other podcasts, and when you become a member, we, we have perks, and one of the things we have, Kevin, is we have a spoiler cast that we do for members only, and we recently did one on the television show Broadchurch, and you were on that with me. Oh, yeah, yeah. We we all
2: talked about Broadchurch. I mean, it's a spoiler cast, so obviously don't listen to it if you haven't seen Broadchurch. But if you haven't, then what are you doing? Go out and
0: watch it right now. Don't turn this podcast off and go watch it. But after the podcast is done, go go check it out. So we have lots of uh, spoiler casts. We also have free books and albums, and we'll talk more about those in the coming weeks. But all of that for $5 a month and you can have that. Just go to com and hit the membership tab at the top.
2: Yeah, and finally, uh, we want to uh, – we we are not the only uh, podcast in the Capca Podcast Network, obviously. Uh, so if you uh, like what you hear here, uh, we'd like to point you in the direction of maybe some of our other podcasts. Uh, the one that I'd want to recommend to all of our listeners right now is something called Burn After Listening. It's a music podcast. It's hosted by Nick Reinerson, who just happened to be have been – one of those commentators on the Broadchurch SpoilerCast we just mentioned. Uh, the Burn After Listening, it's a music podcast devoted to grace and good music. Nick Reinerson and any guests he asks onto the show are going to discuss trends, listen to music, old and new, uh, and do it all with a spiritual ear. So if you like what you hear here and you like what you heard on the Broadchurch SpoilerCast, check out Nick's show, Burn After Listening. It's great. we Welcome back to the second half of our show. Uh, this is the part of the show where, as promised, we are going to talk about the 2015 Oscars, uh, which are going to be coming up in, uh, in a few days, actually, as of the airing of this podcast. Um, so the basic idea is we're going to just kind of talk about the Best Picture nominees, run through a few of the categories, share what we think. Uh, Wade, do you have a particular
0: favorite in the Best Picture race this year? Okay, so I feel like I haven't seen Birdman, so I have to I have to make sure I say that first. I haven't seen Birdman; it could just it could just blow me away. But it feels odd this year because I feel like my my favorite movie of the year might just win. And as I, we were talking to Joshua, and he was saying it, a little cliche, it is cliche, but I'm 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 for Boyhood. I'm Team Boyhood. <laughs> um, and and we did a we did a spoiler cast about this. Uh, when it first came out, but the, the film is, it's, it's more than just like a gimmick, I feel like it could have been that, but it's, it's kind of this beautiful story of a, of a family and the fact that all these small moments create what we call life or, or boyhood. And so that really hit me. I think for, for me, it, out of all the films I've seen this year, I was hit most hard by boyhood did did you Mm -hmm. like it kevin were you like a big fan i i did like boyhood i wasn't i mean Uh uh-oh with boyhood
2: well here's the thing with boyhood boyhood is a sort of uh like art house movie juggernaut that really you know the praise for it was so rapturous that anyone who's not rapturous about it sounds like they're saying they don't like it because it but That's not actually the case. Like I, I really like Boyhood. I put it at number eight on my top ten list. Okay, so that's. Um, not, I mean, that's not bad. Yeah, not yeah. Crazy. No, I, I really liked it. I, um, it didn't make, crack the top five yeah. mostly because, I mean, if it if it has a flaw for me, it's that the central character is also the least interesting character in my opinion. I don't think that Mason Mason is not the the most interesting person in that movie. The most interesting person is probably
0: his mom. Yeah, I would, I would say that. But at the same time, if you're going for a movie, a story that's like, hey, the uninteresting parts of life, like that's life, it kind mm-hmm. of, it almost works into that. Oh, absolutely! Um, yeah, but I, no, I can, I can. It's hard because that that argument could be made, but then the opposite could be made. Well, like, oh yeah, it's supposed to be uninteresting, or he's supposed to have this like internal performance. And so, right. no, but but number eight's not bad. I mean, it's kind of sad that you put Left Behind ahead of it, but <laughs> I I completely understand. Slander. No, but I I I think The Boyhood has a good chance of winning, and it really is a special film. And plus, it takes place in Texas, and I'm. I live in Texas and so I legally have to support that and I legally have to support American sniper or I'm not, I'm not a Texan like that's the rules set before me.
2: Yeah. Um, What, what what are the legal consequences for not supporting a a Texas
0: movie in Texas? Is it, is it in prison? Is it, imprisonment yeah it's something like that they keep, uh, they no. they make you go to arkansas oh <laughs> snap okay huge burn on arkansas out of nowhere <laughs> so have you seen kevin have you seen all the films or is there any that you're missing i have okay. seen all- and maybe we should run through all of them
2: sure sure uh so the the nominees are whiplash american sniper birdman the grand budapest hotel the imitation game selma the Theory of Everything, and uh, Boyhood. Um, and I have seen every one of those except for the Imitation Game. Okay. And in my defense, I will say that I have seen The Theory of Everything, so I feel like I've paid my <laughs> British person biopic dues. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I don't need to subject myself to more than one of those movies per year. And no. I've done The Theory of Everything, so I feel okay about it.
0: The thing with it, the- the theory of everything and the imitation game. It was. It just seemed like it was the these these paint by the numbers bio epic films, and they just they didn't do it for me. I I saw imitation game and I, and I I came out and I said okay you know that's that was a good film. It's not great, but it's good. But over the last I guess months since I've seen it, I've really just I'm like well you know what that's actually not really that great of a movie. They
2: um. they just. Well, I mean, Joshua Overbay was talking about, uh, how the mark of a great film for him is a film that he, that sticks in his mind and he's thinking about long after, Mm -hmm. uh, he's left the theater. And with movies like, at least with the theory of everything, it just, there's nothing there. It just, dissipates into vapor as soon as you watch it there's nothing there to stick in your mind because you've seen the tortured genius with a with some sort of disability movie who triumphs over adversity we've seen that story like there's one every year there's just and there's nothing there to make it more interesting or to engage you beyond kind of a rote inspirational story
0: no and i'm glad you feel that way because i actually watched theory of everything today because i was trying to cram in uh, everything. So I, I will watch, uh, Birdman before the Oscars. But the theory of everything, you know, watching it, it just, it could have been good, but it just was, it was what it was. Like it was, it was like they were, it was as if they were going for, um, safe, quote unquote safe film. And I felt like it had the potential to be this interesting story because uh, Stephen Hawking's wife in the film, is is a christian and so i i felt like it had this interesting story it could have been you know this this tug of war between faith and science and it could really kind of dig deep in some of those themes and then it just it wasn't i mean it just didn't do any of that and so yeah
2: in, in in my review on letterboxd for the theory of everything i i basically said that there there's a germ of an interesting movie in it but it's as if the the screenwriters or the director didn't really know how to make a biopic that wasn't extremely conventional. So they kind of, yeah. I mean, there's literally a climactic standing ovation. This movie, like, you can't. <laughs> no, that's it, true. <laughs> it's like beginning a novel with "It was a dark and stormy night." I mean, no, you don't do
0: that anymore. But the theory of everything does. I did think about that. Yeah, there was this standing ovation <laughs> for the film. Now. I would say okay I I'm, I'm looking at these films. Boyhood obviously my favorite. Haven't seen Birdman. Second favorite is Whiplash. But I don't think it's getting any talk like oh it could win. But it's a it's a very good film.
2: It's it's incredible. I was uh putting together, you know, writing up my top 10 list this this week and just writing about Whiplash, I, I remember just how much of a rush it was when I saw it for the first time. Uh, it, just that that final sequence is just so, uh, I mean, I, it's kind of a cliche to say it, but so adrenaline fueled. Like it, it's just propulsive and the editing just keeps you going and you don't know what's going to happen at the end of it. And it's that I felt that way about the entire movie. It was just so absorbing that by the end of it, i i didn't know what to do with myself hardly it really sent me out of the theater on a high
0: oh yeah no it was it was great and i feel like people have gone back and forth about whiplash saying oh it's this of this this parable of of what happens when you make ambition your idol um and then other people are saying you know it's a parable of 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 what you can achieve if you work hard. And I think it's, mm-hmm. I think it's really in between that. It's, it's wrestling with both of those, but there's not a definitive conclusion to that. And we won't give away the story. Um, but that's what I loved about the film is the, I, the story isn't big, right? It's not Selma big. It's not, uh, American Sniper where it's like we're digging into the horrors of war. It's not boyhood big, but the ideas I feel like are very big for the film.
2: Yeah, and and that ambiguity you mentioned is what makes it interesting. Not knowing, not quite being able to pin down whether it's a parable for in favor of perfectionism or against it, or where exactly it is, because it's kind of both at the same time. It's
0: just amazing. A, A film that's really not getting a ton of conversation either is the Grand Budapest Hotel, and I think part. I feel like if it had been released. In November or December instead of uh, February, then mm-hmm. it would be higher up on this conversation. Um, yeah, I don't think I don't feel like it is. Yeah,
2: you know, this it, this sort of thing happens to Wes Anderson every year, though. He he releases a movie that every, you know gets tons of critical acclaim and is shows up on lots of critics' best best of the year lists at the end of the year but for some reason uh he he's like kryptonite for oscar voters either they don't like him or they don't get him or they forget about him i don't know grant like i'm not i wouldn't call myself a wes anderson fanboy but i loved grand budapest hotel number one of the year
0: number one of the year oh wow number okay. one See, now, okay now i'm not a i'm not a big wes anderson fan either i think he's a fantastic filmmaker and you watch and as someone with ocd you watch his films and you say i'm thankful that everything is just in its place where it's where it's supposed to go but there's just Mm -hmm. something about maybe the i don't know the the quirkiness of it i i just i don't really get him get him super well like moonrise kingdom i wasn't a big fan of that i i felt bad saying that but i just i just didn't connect Grand Budapest Hotel didn't make my top 10, but it's my, probably one of my favorites of Wes Anderson's. It really is a very good film. Um, yeah. But I, yeah, I kind of do struggle with not really getting him, but I think he's a great filmmaker.
2: Yeah, yeah. Everybody's threshold is a little bit different for Wes Anderson. And he's so, every one of his movies is so idiosyncratic that you know, everybody has their their own favorite. Uh like, you know, the Royal Tenenbaums is is a popular one. Uh Grand a lot of people have been saying Grand Budapest is his best. Tons of people really like Moonrise Kingdom. And I think that's what's interesting about him is is some of his movies just resonate at a certain frequency and you just can't help
0: but resonate with them. Yes yeah. When I saw Bottle Rocket, his first film, I was like, this is incredible. It's one of my favorites from him. And maybe it's because it took place in Texas and I have to like it. (laughs) But under penalty of law. Under penalty of law. But I, I thought, I thought that was a, it was a great film. I laughed really hard at that film. Probably more than Moonrise Kingdom. So speaking of Texas, I mentioned it before. You just saw American Sniper. I'm, I'm watching you on Letterboxd, Kevin. (laughs) And you just saw American Sniper. Um. And yeah. There have been a lot of conversations about American Sniper. I'm worried that American Sniper could win, and if it does, it will literally break the internet. Like it will just—if <laughs> you, you have a smartphone, it will just explode when they announce American Sniper. How did you feel about it, Kevin? Was it good, bad? Uh, I don't know. I I
2: think that a lot of the furor surrounding it is is based on its politics. Um, um. There's There's been a lot of criticism of it, of the way it depicts the Iraqi people and the way it depicts the Iraq war. Um, and I, and while those, those things could be seen as problematic, I don't think they're a major problem with the film. I think the major problem with the film is that we never, East, Clint Eastwood never really, uh, picks what he wants his movie to be, whether he, uh, whether we're supposed to, uh, see everything through Chris Kyle's eyes or whether it's supposed to be kind of a more dispassionate, detached view of the entire conflict as a whole. It kind of tries to be both of those things. And I think it kind of falls between two stools, uh, in, in that way. I mean, it's really well made in some ways. And then there are some choices that. Clint Eastwood and his screenwriter make that are just inexplicable to me. What did you think? Did you, did you see it?
0: No, yeah, I did. I, I think I like it better. I think I like it better than you liked it. I, when I watched it, I was, I just, all the, oh, it's, it's, it's pro Iraqi war, uh, or it's, you know, this or that. I, I thought all those arguments were silly after sitting down and just watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really just, it's, it's about war. And the thing with Eastwood, I feel like, is he's very good at holding his cards close. And he's yeah. not gonna come out in a film and say, this is an anti-war picture. And he's not gonna come out and say, this is a pro-war picture. He's just gonna give us a window into the story. And that's one of the reasons I feel like it's, it's making so much money. Partly because of the controversy. Everybody's talking about it. But partly is because, is because both sides are seeing it and a majority of people on both sides have something about the film that they, that they can relate to or enjoy or they, or they feel like connects with, with their ideology. Mm -hmm. So I think that was important. The end, it just falters at the end. There are things that I, that I didn't really connect with. It's,
2: it's ending is, yeah, it's it's a huge flaw. It, yeah, it, it is. It, Uh, it was, I was kind of, I was kind of hovering around giving it three and a half stars. And then the ending happened. I was like, nope, down to three.
0: (laughs) Uh, Okay. I gave it four. So I'm just the easier teacher when it comes to grading. I don't know. Um, Well, I, you know, (laughs) I I guess I can be
2: the, I don't know which, which one, which, which one of us would be the grumpy person. I guess I would probably be the grumpy person in that scenario. it,
0: It depends on how long it's been since I've eaten. <laughs> yeah, that that would that would that would dictate it. No, but I so I yeah, I did like it. Bradley Cooper, I thought he was just incredible. You know, like yeah. I'm like, man, I know people like him. He he had this very internal performance, but yet it didn't become stoic in the sense that it was bland or boring. Um and and just the little the little things that he did and the way that he carried himself and his dialect and everything i just he he really was a conflicted soldier who never wanted to express any of that weakness according you know in in the film the chris kyle in the film and so he Definitely. did he did a fantastic job so i think that's one of the things that elevated it for me was his performance and then of course the i felt like the the scenes uh the war scenes the battle scenes were very very well done Yes. Um, and then I'm also thinking about I, I wish they would have nominated the baby for best supporting actor. I think that, that I think that he I think the baby got snubbed.
2: Um, yeah, you, you you think so? I I mean the baby I think at one point they the the fake baby did like kind of move its arm. I I don't know if that was special effects or if that was Bradley Cooper moving its arm for it, but it did move its arm. I was like that looks very
0: realistic. That arm <laughs> Bradley, that's why Bradley Cooper deserves this nomination. He's not just doing it. He's not doing his performance. He's bringing a, a doll to life. He, he held this cabbage patch doll in his arms and I believed it was his own flesh and blood. It that's his own amazing. Flesh and blood. And that's, give the, give the man an Oscar. That's, he should just take it home now. Um, yeah. and then Selma, I had a chance to, to catch, uh, Selma last night. Not a top 10 movie of the year for me, but a very, really? a very good movie. I, I'm interested to hear why. Uh, it didn't make my top 10 list
2: either. And I'm kind of, I've kind of felt a little bit out in the cold because I, I wanted to like it so much more. And I, you know, it didn't, and it is very good, but it didn't quite crack my top 10. I'm curious why it didn't for you either.
0: You know, um, I think part of it, it's very exposition heavy at times. It felt like, during some of the conversations, they were it was less of them talking to each other and more dialogue to help the viewer catch up. So so I'm watching this and their conversations about voting laws and all these things that they're talking about, the strategy. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, if if I'm sitting if if I'm sitting in the room when that actual real conversation is going on, they're not talking about any of these things because they kind of already They, they know everything they're talking about. So I felt like that was part of it. Visually though, it was, I felt like it was filmed very, very well. Visually, it was a very good film. It was good. It wasn't like this super special film for me, but Mm I, I thought it was great and it's good for, it's good for the time, right? It released it. I feel like the right time. For our country. And it's a, it's a film that I would probably, out of all the films that have been nominated, I would probably encourage people to go see that one the most, though it's Mm -hmm. not necessarily my favorite. That, that makes sense. I, I
1: definitely
2: agree that it benefits a lot from kind of an accident of timing with its release in the cultural climate that is, present ar- around us right now. Um, but yeah, I, I, would agree with pretty much everything you said about it. The screenplay is weak, but the cinematography and the performances are just top notch. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, the cinematographer Bradford Young, incidentally, for any of our listeners who have their Netflix queue open right now, um, he has also acted as cinematographer on a movie called Ain't Them Body Saints, which is one of the most gorgeous movies of I think 2013. When I saw it in the theater and blew me away, it was like a, a malik film. I haven't, it, it, I haven't got it that. It looked one yet. that. It looked that good. I would highly recommend it. Okay. Okay. And is that on Netflix now or? Uh, you know, I, I'm one of the dinosaurs who has Netflix, has a disc plan with Netflix, but not streaming. So, uh, I can't, I I couldn't
0: comment on that. Okay. But you can, you can rent it. I mean, it's streaming. It's been out. I've I've seen it in different places. No, that's... Yeah.
2: You ought to be able to find it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then do you think, I mean, is the hype, is the hype deserved for Birdman? I don't
2: think so. I probably would not even put it in my top 20. It was fine for I mean it has some really great strengths, Michael Keaton's performance and the the kind of the single take conceit that it has going where the entire movie is filmed like it looks it's like it's been done in a single take. works very well. I don't think it's hard to tell how seriously we're meant to take Michael Keaton's struggling artist or struggling actor. In the film, and I think that's a little bit of a weakness. I've, I'm I'm not sure whether the movie wants us to think he is kind of ridiculous or to think he's a visionary artist because it kind of hints at both of those readings.
0: And I don't and know if you knew this or not, but it's a play on him being Batman. Not a lot of people got no, that. What? Yeah, I know. I just blew for, your mind. But it's a play on him. He used to be no, Batman.
2: My my mind is. That is amazing. I um, should
0: have read the yeah. production notes before. Yeah, you, sh- you should have. Real quick, let's just go through actor in a leading role.
2: Uh, for me, it would come down to Michael Keaton or Bradley Cooper. Um, my, I, I probably would give give the edge to Michael Keaton and Burton because it is a really great performance, even if I didn't care as much for the film. Gotcha. And would, as you say, were saying, Bradley Cooper's amazing.
0: Yeah, I would say Bradley Cooper, and then. Um, Let's do, let's do actress in a leading role before we finish this up. I really love, uh, Marion, um. Marion Cotillard, yeah. Okay. I love her in two days, one night and, and in the immigrant. I, I'm hoping, I'm pulling for her.
2: Yeah. I would agree with you. It, it, really, it should be a a dual nomination for those two roles because she's so amazing.
0: Okay. So we're going to, we're going to kind of, uh, conclude the show. With recommendations from TV and film, Kevin, what what is something you would recommend to our listeners from the TV and film world?
2: Well, I, I just finished watching True Detective, so I was going to uh, recommend that. But I'm kind of behind the times on True Detective, so that seems boring. But if you haven't seen it, watch it. Uh, my recommendation would be a movie from uh, Don Hertzfeld called Everything Will Be Okay. It's a it's an animated uh, film that uh, I don't know if, if anyone's familiar with Don Hertzfeldt. Have you have you seen
0: any of his stuff, Wade? Oh, I know I have, but I forget which one I've seen. Uh, he's
2: he's best known for an Oscar-nominated animated short called "Rejected." Uh, okay. He's uh, his style is is basically stick figures. It's very simple and stripped okay. down, um, but he incorporates them in, into these amazing, innovative animated sequences that use uh (laughs) three-dimensional it's it's really hard to to describe you have to see his films to believe them but um everything will be okay is kind of a triptych film that he stitched together out of three short films that all follow a protagonist stick figure named bill who's diagnosed with a terminal illness and kind of lives through that experience and hallucinates and discovers the meaning of life and visits space um you so had me. me it in kind space. of it's it's amazing. And like I say, it needs to be seen to be believed, but everything will be okay by Don Hertzfeld would be my recommendation
0: to our listeners this week. You know, what's wild is that's, that was the one I, I had picked to recommend. No, I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> so I was, uh, I was going to recommend, uh, Gilmore girls. My wife and I have just started that. And, um, and that Rory is crazy, but I, I will, I will recommend something else. There's a new film on Netflix. It's called Frank. And it is about a struggling musician who joins this, uh, odd kind of experimental pop band. And it's led by Michael Fassbender. But here's the interesting part. Uh, he only wears a paper crochet head, um, for most of the film. And it, it's, it sounds odd and it is an odd film, but it's, it's delightful. It's funny. It speaks to to success and to fame and what it means to be an artist and community. And it's a very, very good film. And so if you have Netflix, it's on the instant queue. Frank, check it out. Michael Fassbender is just, I mean, he's great. He has the paper crochet head on, but yet he's a better actor um, Wait. than most.
2: So, so it, it, the head is it, is it crocheted or is it paper mached? Oh, I'm not pa- sure.
0: Paper mache. Okay. I yeah. wasn't sure if, you know, he was like wearing a head made out of yarn no. or something. No, that was, no, no. I was just, yeah, no, mache. Oh,
2: th- no, no, I am sorry for not, for, for not going with the obvious choice, which would, would have been paper mache. Yeah, Because a, a yarn head would just be ridiculous.
0: Yeah, that would have been made it interesting. No. So yeah. and no, no. So it's a, it's a, it's a good film. So check it out. And that's our recommendation picks for the week. Kevin, it's been a good first episode. We've got, we've got some great stuff planned for episode two, so make sure that you subscribe to the podcast and give us a review. Thank you for listening to Seeing and Believing.
1: We'll talk to you next week. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes and check out our other shows at christinpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.